Today at the end of our service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and so I guess our whole time of studying God's Word is preparation for that, so you might want to keep that in mind as we look to do what Christ has us to do as His followers in celebrating the Lord's Supper. I invite you to turn once again, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Romans. And as you are turning there, I have a profound question to ask you, and that is, if you were stranded on a desert island... And you could have a book with you, what book would you take? I know a number of you would say the Bible. In fact, in the first hour, someone said the Bible out loud, and I would agree. It's the best book. Great book, committed to the Bible, Omaha Bible Church. Some of you are thinking Romans because you're thinking we're studying Romans, and so I think that's probably the right answer, and that's what he's looking for. But those of you who are very, very smart will agree with me. Tongue in cheek, I say that. You'll bring a book that teaches you how to build a boat. <laughs> You're stranded on an island. I'm going to take a book that teaches me how to build a boat so I can then sail to civilization, find a Bible, and read Romans. Now, someone has taken issue with my illustration this morning, and they said, well, the last time I checked, Genesis teaches us how to build a boat. And uh, <clears throat> it's going to be a long time. And then I actually thought, well, you could just have the book of Jonah because that just teaches you to sin a whole bunch until you get swallowed by a big fish and then you get spit out on dry land. But anyway, probably won't take that route. You say, what does that have to do with this sermon? Not much, um, but it at least gets you to the book of Romans and it gets you thinking and it does allow me to say, I do love the book of Romans and if I were stranded on an island and I did have a book that taught me how to build a ship, I would sail to civilization, find a Bible, and I would read Romans. It is unmatched in the Bible when it comes to explaining the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. It is amazing. There are some 7,100 words, and it seems that each one of those words in the book of Romans is geared toward, in one way or another, exalting Christ and His great gospel. And today we're going to continue on with what I am calling our introduction to the introduction, maybe even to the introduction to the book of Romans. Last time we were together, last Sunday, we began looking at a number of extraordinary things about the book of Romans. Extraordinary things that that demand our attention. Extraordinary things that ultimately will demand our worship of this great God. Let me review the first seven, and I'll just mention them quickly and in passing. Uh, I won't elaborate at all, but in case you'd like to be reminded, here are the first seven extraordinary things about the book of Romans we looked at last time. Number one, Romans is powerful. Number two, Romans is lasting or enduring as opposed to just being the next fad. Number three, Romans is simple. Number four, Romans is complex. Number five, Romans is clear about sin. Number six, Romans is the answer to the question. And number seven, Romans is God-centered. So powerful, lasting, simple, complex, clear about sin, the answer to the question, and God-centered. And then my intention was to give you six more this morning and maybe six more next week. And I got five done first hour. And so we're going to do five this hour because we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so, Lord willing, we will do these next five on the list. That means we're at number eight. And if you just want to jot this down, you certainly can. An extraordinary thing about the book of Romans that causes us uh, to pay attention. It causes us ultimately to want to worship Christ. Number eight, Romans is good news comma, not merely good advice. Romans is good news. It is gospel news, comma, 
not merely good advice. And hopefully you're thinking, what does he mean by that? If you're not thinking, I know exactly what he means because I've heard this before because it's not an original idea. I want us to even invest a decent amount of time looking at the difference between good news, gospel news, which is what Romans gives itself to explaining, and good advice. And I want us to be able to think through what the differences are and why it is important to make sure we see the differences in all of life and in every sermon we ever hear and any book we ever read. Romans gives us good news, gospel news, not merely good advice. Now, good advice is something we, we all know what good advice is. Good advice is when someone tells you something you need to do that will benefit you. Or good advice is when someone tells you not to do something for your benefit. We know what good advice is. You must do something so that this will happen that is good for you. Or you must not do something so that this will happen that is good for you or you'll avoid something bad. But it comes down to you must do something for your benefit. That is good advice. And Romans has good advice, by the way. Although technically it's not good advice because it comes from the authoritative uh, mouth of God, but that's for another conversation. The Bible has good advice in it, but the, but the crux of Romans, the, the message of Romans as a whole is not good advice. It is good news. The gospel is the furthest thing from good advice. It is good news, and here's why. Because it is about what God has done in Christ. No, let me even add to that. It is what God has done, not what you must do. It is what God has done in the finished work of Christ. His work is done. His work is complete. His work is finished. God has done a great thing in Christ That makes it good news. It makes it joyous news. That's why the Bible talks about preaching the good news, heralding the good news, announcing the good news. It's this word that's sometimes used in association of a victory. If there is a battle between two warring entities and the one side that wins can't come and then say, we won! They're not saying we're working at it. They're saying, it's done, the battle's over, and we are the victors. They're preaching, they're heralding victory. Well, that's the kind of word we have with this preaching word. We preach the gospel, we don't preach good advice, we don't tell people what they must do or what they must not do, and if as long as they avoid certain things and do certain things enough, they're eventually going to get to heaven. That's good advice. Good news is, Jesus Christ came here and lived a perfect life. The life you could not live. And then He died in your place as He satisfied the just wrath of God that you deserve. And then He rose again from the dead on your behalf. And and if you believe in Him, trust in Him, you're united with Him and you will have eternal life. You'll be justified. That's good news. That is great news. That's the gospel based upon what he has done. Romans 1.1 starts talking about this, and it's everywhere in Romans, but right from the very beginning in Romans 1.1 it says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the good advice that comes from God. No! The, the gospel of God! It's, it's the good, finished work of Christ that comes from God! It's the gospel. It is so different from five ways to Seven promises of A. Seven habits of. 
Ten laws of, keys to, how to have your... Some of those things are fine in and of themselves. They're good advice. But they become bad advice when they become intermingled with or confused with or mistaken for the gospel. That happens sometimes. I want Romans to make the gospel so clear to us what God has done for us in the finished work of Christ that we never, ever, ever, ever mistake good advice for good news. Because when we do, the good advice is really bad advice. And it's anything but good news. It's actually bad news. It is bad news if you must do all of these things and you must keep enough of these seven promises and you must keep enough of these seven habits. You must keep enough of these, you fill in the blank, and if you just keep enough of them and you go to another one of these seminars, sermons, whatever they are, and and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, if you will, if you just do it enough, God will accept you. That is horrible news. It's horrible news in light of Romans because in light of Romans, no one does good, no, not one. No one seeks for God. Sure, we have relative goodness, but not the kind God is looking for, a perfectly righteous God. I want so badly for us to spot bad news that's called, or, or bad news that's called good advice when we see it so that we can know the difference. And Romans is going to help us to do that. How about if you would, if you just look at Romans 3.28. It's just, just a great summary verse that talks about this very thing that we're talking about. And we're going to be able to dive in and look in detail in the days ahead. But we're just doing the overview. We're going to spend enough time in Romans that we need to kind of see the big picture. And that's what we're doing this morning. It's what we did last week. It's what we'll do next week. It says, Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man... In this context, a sinful human being. That's what we've seen in chapter 3. For we maintain that a man, a, a sinful human being, is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I might read it another way for the sake of application. For we maintain that, a, that a, the sinner, a sinful man, is justified, declared righteous by faith, faith in the finished work of Christ apart from good advice apart from trying to obey the ten whatever, the five whatever, even the good and righteous law of God, it can't be done. The key to the good news, remember, too, is the good Savior. The word gospel is, gospel is, is, is heralding the good news evangelism tied to the same concept same word the key to the evangelistic message the good news message is the evangel the good one that's what we're clinging to in the book of Romans that's what we're clinging to if we're going to be honest before God and before ourselves Christ is good he did everything for us and based upon his goodness God accepts me even though I'm not good. It's the gospel. 
And it's tied to the goodness of Christ. And we want to see the difference between good and good news and good advice. Let's move on. This brings us to number nine. Another extraordinary thing about the book of Romans is Romans is Christ-exalting. It is Christ-exalting. This is how it starts. This is how it ends. This is how it is in the middle. And I just want to see a sampling of this together. It's everything about Christ. But look at chapter 1, verse 1. I know we've already looked at it, but let's read a little further this time. Romans is Christ-exalting like nothing else. It says in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning... His Son. Good news of God concerning His Son. The emphasis is on His Son. That's Christ exalting, who was born a descendant of David. That's, that's royal line, the royal messianic line, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power. That's exalting Christ. By the resurrection from the dead, that's certainly exalting Christ. That's the undoable being done. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, that's exalting to Christ, through whom we have received grace. That's, if, if the grace comes through Christ, that's exalting Christ and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His namesake. Notice, why is all this happening? It's for His namesake. That's exalting Christ. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. That's exalting to Christ. Verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome called saints... That's exalting to Christ in light of what we've read or what we, he goes on to explain in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that anybody could be called a saint with any legitimacy. No one does good, no, not one. And, and, and because of his great work of redemption, they can be called saints. This is almost unthinkable. That's exalting to Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exalting to Christ too. Romans starts, exa- starts with exalting Christ. It ends with exalting Christ. If you look at the last verse, which we read for Scripture reading this morning, the last verse says, chapter 16, verse 27, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Starts exalting Christ, ends exalting Christ, and everything in the middle is exalting Christ. It's all about Him. It's absolutely amazing when we look to the cross of Christ and what Romans does is it explains the cross work of Christ with enough, with enough depth that you can't conclude anything other than the fact He's great. He has done the undoable. He is amazing. He's absolutely amazing. And that's what we seek to do in studying Romans, to be further impressed with Christ. Now, I do want to warn you, the more, with this, the more you are impressed with Christ, by necessity, you will not be impressed with yourself. That's just how it works. And I submit to you the book of Romans as proof. It's supposed to be this way. What happens? Sin, 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 sin. You're a sinner. You're guilty. No one does good. No, not one. Chapter one. Nail number one in the coffin. Chapter two. Nail number two in the coffin. Chapter three. Nail number three. And the coffin is sealed. But for us as Christians, and we see the great glory of Christ, that's why we think it is so amazing. It wasn't like our religion could get us to God. He's far too righteous and we're far too sinful. I mean, it just, it just couldn't be that way. I mean, we, we were looking uh, some time ago at chapter 3, verse 26. 
for the demonstration, uh, I say, of his righteousness. He's not going to flex in his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just, the righteous one, and the justifier. How could that be of the one who has faith in Jesus? But he's assuming there that, that we're sinners and, and, and it all comes as a result of his greatness. It is going to be a humbling exercise. If you ever leave in the book of Romans and you leave here prideful, you must have been staying up too late watching Saturday Night Live last night too much. <laughs> There's no room for pride at all. The only thing we contribute is guilt and need. It's all about him. I had a professor who made a profound impact on my life years ago, and he talked about the teeter-totter of theology or the teeter-totter in theology. And he talked about where sinners are seen as who God says they are, low, not weighty and substantial, but low, Christ is exalted. And the analogy eventually breaks down, but it's a pretty good one. It's a pretty good picture. But as sinners are elevated and seen as somehow having something they can contribute, somehow it's by their works, cooperating with grace or something like that, as they are elevated, Christ is lowered. I think he's exactly right. That's why Romans makes it so clear so early on. No one does good. No, not one. Because if we do good in the eyes of God, this is what's happening. Christ is being diminished. Here's the axiom, if you will, that I wrote down so I can get it right. To the extent that you agree with God about your sinful state, you will see Christ exalted. We can elaborate on that, but to the degree that you don't agree with God about your sinful state, you won't see Christ as exalted. The key to agreeing with God about Christ, which is of the utmost importance, is also, by God's grace, agreeing with God about who you are. And it becomes amazing once we see that. Christ is exalted in the book of Romans, and it is absolutely amazing. You know, it's strange when people have such a hard time with Romans 1, 2, and 3. And but it is humbling, devastatingly so. But it's a dead giveaway that they don't see the cross the way God sees the cross. Or vice versa. If we don't think much of the cross and we don't make a big deal out of it, it's because we think much of ourselves. It's a dead giveaway. That's the logic that, that bleeds from the pages in the book of Romans. Let's move on to another extraordinary thing about the book of Romans, and that is number 10. Calling for our close to, closest attention, Romans is, because number 10, Romans is liberating. It is liberating. Put another way, and I want to get this right, so I'll just read what I wrote down. Don't have a good enough memory. Too much NutraSweet, perhaps. Put another way, the truth of God unpacked in Romans takes that demon-inspired, joy-stealing, glory-grubbing monster called legalism and squashes it like the ugly bug that it is. Legalism crushes... Or excuse me, the cross of Christ seen for what it is, which is what Romans does, absolutely crushes legalism. And as a pastor, I want so badly for that to happen. 
I want that to happen in your life. I want that to happen in my life. We all have this, this little legalistic something or another inside of us, it seems. And so I want us to be liberated. I want us to be free to have that burden taken off of our back that somehow says, yeah, Jesus is good. Jesus is all right with me, as the song says. And then as long as you do these things, enough, God will accept you. That's legalism. It just ain't so. It just ain't so. I did that for effect, kids. That's why I used the word ain't. just wanted to make sure that was clear in my family. <laughs> I classify legalism under two categories, capital L legalism and lowercase l legalism. The key to getting rid of both kinds of legalism is a right understanding of the cross, which is what Christ does for us, which is what Romans articulates for us. Capital L legalism is when you're told that if you do this and you trust in Christ, God will accept you and he'll eventually let you into heaven. Capital L legalism. Well, the problem with that is I can't do enough good. In fact, even my good is not counted as good. That's Romans 3. Is it verse 10? I know we looked at it last time. Yeah. That's in the New Testament, folks. Uh, Legalism just is bankrupt from the very beginning. And so what happens? Since we can't, Christ does. And that's why it's only by faith that we are justified. Look, if you will, at chapter 4. Chapter 4 of Romans. We're not going to take the time to read chapter 4. But my my section in Romans chapter 4, my Bible, looks like a, a war zone. Because it's so good. But... What we read in chapter 4, verse 1, which gets rid of legalism, and of course legalism doesn't work if you uh, can't do any good anyway. So by the time you get to chapter 4, you're ready for this. But in chapter 4, it says in verse 1, What then shall, shall, shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Ultimate authority. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Then he goes on to unpack this reality, verse 5, but to the one who does not work. Legalism doesn't do it, but believes or depends upon, trusts in him who justifies the ungodly. See, legalism couldn't work because you're ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Then he uses David as an example. And then what I did, and I would encourage you to do the same thing, is, is underline and highlight all the places where he uses synonyms for faith, where he says faith, believe, and so on and so forth. It's all over the place. Chapter 9, faith, or excuse me, uh, verse 9, faith, verse 11, faith, verse 11, believe, verse 12, faith, 13, faith, 14, faith, 16, by faith, faith of Abraham in 16, 17, believed, 18, believed, 19, faith, 20, faith, then you have faith terminology with crediting in verses 22 and 23 and 24, 24, believe, then in chapter 5, which I don't want to take the time to go into, by faith, and it just keeps going on and on and on. Making the point. You can't do it. Abraham didn't do it. You can't do it. He's the example. Christ did everything. He obeyed the law perfectly. He earned our salvation, if you will, by works. Because we never could. By His perfect work of redemption. That's why you believe. You depend. You trust. You allow Him to carry you, if you will, if you want that word picture. It just gets rid of legalism. Legalism is a tyrant. It is a monster. 
people are in bondage to this. If I just try harder, if I just try harder, if I just try harder, if I just keep the seven promises or whatever. That's legalism. No. Christ kept more than seven. He kept all of them. That's how you can be justified, declared righteous by faith. And only by faith. Well, Romans forces us to the cross, rivets our attention on the cross so that we can see that it's it's not a matter of legalism at all. It's not a matter of lowercase l legalism either that says, okay, you understand all that. But now, in order to be growing as a Christian, in order to be godly, in order to stay in a right relationship with God, you've got to do all of these extra biblical things. Romans gets rid of that too. Romans totally gets rid of that as well. It's all based upon what Christ has done, not just our salvation, but our sanctification as well, and Him working in and through us, and we follow Him and His Word, nothing more, nothing less, by His grace. Whether you're talking about capital L legalism or lowercase l legalism, I say the cure for both is that. When I meet someone who somehow is in bondage, is in shackles to lowercase l legalism, the solution is the same. What can I do to get them to meditate on the cross? What can I do to get them to understand the profound reality of what Christ has done perfectly and completely and they can be freed from this lowercase l legalism? that is so crucial and so important. It's vital that we help people. I want you to be further equipped, not only so you can be helped, but so you can help other, pe- other people. It's the, it's the kind and gracious thing to do. We're called to love our neighbor as ourself. Well, one of the most loving things you can do when you see someone in bondage to legalism is tell them the truth. Tell them the truth about what Christ has done. Thoughtfully, carefully. Even in chapter 14, when we eventually get there, he's talking about what I would consider lowercase l legalism when people have somehow thought they have to keep certain rules and regulations, not in order to to gain uh, entrance into heaven, but in order to somehow be spiritual and these kinds of things. Paul makes the point clear. It's chapter 14, verse 14. I know and I am convinced in the Lord Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He's talking about if it's not in the Bible, if it's not forbidden by God in the Bible, you know what? It's all fair game. I'm convinced of it. We need to hear that. To get rid of lowercase l legalism. But you know what? I like it that he, that he has patience and kindness and, and, and he leaves room for growth. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. You know what? We need to have love and compassion and leave room for growth in everybody. But it's interesting. That's not how he deals with uppercase l legalism. It's dealt with in Galatians. And he says anybody who preaches that, that it's salvation by grace through faith in Christ, plus works. That's a damning message. And so Romans is going to deal with both, and I'm very, very glad because it will be spiritually healthy for us and healthy for us as a church. Number 11. The next one. Number 11. Romans is a giver of assurance. Romans is a giver of assurance. And we're going to have to end on this one as much as I don't want to. Romans 5. If you turn to Romans 5, I'll I'll have you see this. If you truly are a Christian, you can be sure of your salvation. Some of you need to be assured, and Romans is going to help with that. Other people that you might know are held in bondage because they can never be sure 
Well, they need to know what Romans says as well, so this is going to be an equipping kind of thing. Usually we go to Romans chapter 8 because it is like the classic passage on assurance, but I want to go back up to Romans chapter 5. But you know, while you're going to Romans 5, but we could back up even further. Because if Romans 1 talks about sin, Romans 2 talks about sin, and Romans 3 talks about sin, to the point where no one does good, no, not one. You know, if you can be saved, chapter 4, by grace alone, through faith alone, you can't lose what you yourself never earned. And so even the logic of the progression of Romans is arguing for and proclaiming an assurance kind of message. But in Romans 5, you've got a great, great statement early on where it says, Therefore, having been justified, that, that, that's, those are words of assurance, past tense, having been justified by faith, not by works, it's by faith, we have peace with God. That, that bleeds assurance. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, it's His finished work. That, that bleeds assurance. That's, that's mediator terminology. Well, we're not at war anymore. We're at peace through Jesus Christ and His finished work, through whom we also, in verse 2, have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. That's an assurance kind of word. And we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. So we've got assurance just jumping off the page. If it's all of what He has done, you've contributed nothing. You're depending upon Him to get you there. Now you have peace with God. You know what? We stand in that. We can be sure in that. We have a mediator. It's not exactly related to this, but I I recently heard someone say, uh, and it has a few holes in it, but generally I think it was a pretty good statement. Someone said, the difference between heaven and hell is very simple. Hell is when you are in the presence of God for eternity. True statement. Revelation chapter 14, there isn't in the presence of the Lamb. Satan's not in charge of hell. Jesus is. Hell is being in the presence of God for eternity. Heaven is being in the presence of God for eternity with a mediator. Ha! I thought, that's pretty good. I know it's got a few leaks, but it gets us thinking. You know what? The key is Christ. The key is we are there, and now we've been reconciled to this great, righteous holy God who we would never want to be around if we're sinners who are condemned guilty. But if we have a mediator, if we have a substitute, we want to be with Him because now we are at peace with God. That is something that gives us assurance. The fact that we have a mediator, we have peace with God, we have assurance, and we're going to get a lot of it in the book of Romans. Well, Romans 8, let's eventually get there. Let's go ahead and look at Romans 8. It's the place. If someone asks you, where does the Bible teach assurance of salvation? I hope you perhaps can think of John 10 and other texts that are so great. But but Romans 8 really should be locked in your mind. This is exciting stuff. This is great stuff because it's based upon the finished work of Christ. Look at Romans 8.28 with me if you would. And we know, that sounds pretty sure, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. How, How do we know that? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Predestined, that, 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 that just bleeds assurance. So that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, and these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. Notice even the past tense emphasis, that's sure. And these whom He justified, He also glorified, that's sure as well. It's just crying out, not, don't read that verse in, in the church because that's so controversial. It's saying, read it! 
Read it because this is what assurance is all about. That, that God is the one before eternity passed who had a plan and it's carried into eternity future all the way to glory. Romans gives us assurance in the finished work of Christ and in the plan of God through Christ. Verse 31, now he's going to build upon that logic. What then shall we say to these things? We shouldn't say, don't read that in church. We should say, praise be to God, right? If God is for us, who's against us? You can't touch me. You couldn't make me doubt my salvation. How about that? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us. Our assurance is tied to the substitutionary atonement of Christ. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? It's implied that He absolutely will. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? That's meant to be assuring, not controversial. God is the one who justifies. It's Him, it's His work, not ours. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. That's assurance. He's praying for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? What's the implied answer? No, 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 no! <laughs> That's what the implied answer is. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death, all day long, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. That's assurance. Through Him, that's assurance. Who loved us? That's assurance. Verse 38, For I am convinced, unwaveringly so, steadfastly so, is the idea that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who died a perfect, complete, substitutionary death, which is what he's basing his argument on here, which came before in Romans. How about that? Yeah! It's a lot of days like today you wish you were a Baptist. Right? Shout amen, somebody. Right? That's what you'd say. This is so good that we can be sure. Not because Romans died for us. No, but because Romans unpacks the reality, the deep reality of what Christ did for us, which is the gospel. It takes us deep. It takes us deep in these gospel realities. In Romans 6, uh, verse 5, it says, for, we have become, you, uh, for if we have become united with Him, and we have if we believed in Him, in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also, certainly, certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. That is wonderfully assuring. Now, I hope to, to further drive home the point here to, to help you understand why this is so crucial and critical for you to understand Let me acknowledge before you that I know some of you don't have this. Some of you don't have this because of other things that you've learned. Well, I'm not in charge. I'm not the, the authority. <clears throat> but neither is that other source you listen to once upon a time. God's Word is the authority on the matter. It's all tied to the finished work of Christ. Romans 8, if it says anything, says you can't have assurance without question. Some of you need to have assurance. And I know some of these are related because it might be tied to legalism and all kinds of other things, but you can find it here. 
But broadening the circle a little bit, some of you have assurance. I can almost guarantee you that you know people who don't. That you know people who think they can't ever have it. In fact, they're clinging to some sort of religious system that says you can't have assurance. Folks, have this be sweet for your own soul, but please have this be a time of equipping so that you might be equipped to do ministry in other people's lives. I mean, think about that for a moment. What kind of impact you can have in someone's life for their burdened, weighed-down soul because they have somehow had themselves tied in spiritual religious shackles because they think somehow they could never be sure and it's all a matter of, I don't know. You want to go deep with me in Romans. Well, what's on my mind, you just turn on the news or read any newspaper. Let's make this even more applicable. The Pope is in our country, and you'd think, I don't know what has happened. It's pretty amazing. Listen to what the Council of Trent says about assurance. Our city is filled with people who are Roman Catholic. So is our world, and our world is infatuated with this notion, and they're infatuated with this guy known as the Pope who believes these things, more than some other popes have believed these things, by the way. Council of Trent, you say that's old Roman Catholicism. Now it's Vatican II, kinder, gentler Roman Catholicism. You would be historically mistaken. The face is nicer. Council of Trent has never been retracted. It is official Catholic dogma. Listen to what this says in contrast to Romans 8 and tell me that people don't need to learn Romans 8. Canon 15 of the Council of Trent says, and I quote, If anyone says that a man who is born again and justified is bound ex fide to believe that he is certainly in the number of the predestined, let him be anathema, damned to an eternal hell. This is relevant. You have something in your hot little hand called the Bible, called Romans, in context. Romans 8 in particular, that can free people from the bondage of a threat like that. And you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. You have a great opportunity. Canon 16 of the Council of Trent says, If anyone says that he will for certain, with an absolute and infallible certainty, have that great gift of perseverance even to the end, unless he shall have learned this by special revelation, let him be anathema. But I would suggest that I dodge that bullet of being anathematized because I have learned this from special revelation. It's called the Bible. It's called Romans chapter 8, and there is not a surer surer form of special revelation. Another excerpt from Trent, Trent declares... For except by special revelation, it cannot be known whom God has chosen to Himself. Okay, that's a tragedy on the level of disservice to humanity. But that's a tragedy on a whole other level because that defames the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because that's where assurance comes from ultimately. If Jesus Christ truly and genuinely came here, lived a perfect life, and died a perfect death to never die again, he sat down at the right hand of the Father as the high priest because his work was over as the book of Hebrews in chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10 says, 
He rose again from the dead. It is finished. It is over. It is done. Which is the source of our assurance. And now you're going to tell me I can't be sure. In fact, if I say I am sure, I'm anathematized. You didn't really anathematize me. Ultimately, you anathematized him. Lack of assurance ultimately is tied to not understanding the finished work of Christ. But it's no wonder in the Mass you don't have the finished work of Christ. It is perpetual and ongoing, the re-crucifying of Christ. You say, why are you making this such a big deal? Well, let's not stick our head in the sand and say no one around us believes this. Have you watched the news lately? Have you ever talked to your neighbors? About 50% of the city of Omaha? This is a huge deal. And you know what? You, by the grace of God, have the antidote. You, 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 you have the, the, those giant bolt cutters that go in and, and snap the, the shackles and people can be free and know who Christ really is. And you're going to tell me that you're not going to tell them because you love them? You're going to tell me that it'd be better and more loving for the pastor not to talk about these things? You got the bolt cutters. <laughs> you have the truth and you can help people so that they might know that they know that they know that they know based upon the finished work of Christ that they can say. How about if we read, read, read Romans 8.38 For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor popes nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor any other created thing including anathematizing church papal councils will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah! The whole reason you try to put his arms around everything and give all of those synonyms is knowing that somehow somebody would come up with some new way that would rob you of your assurance. You don't need to be robbed. The reason it's such a big deal is because it ultimately is an assault on Christ. Well, that's just one example. There are all kinds of religions throughout the world that teach and emphasize. In fact, in one way or another, every religion on planet Earth teaches and emphasizes that you can't be sure. That's why you've got to keep doing the stuff. You've got to keep giving the money. And you've got to keep making the journeys. And you've got to keep going on. And you've got to keep doing, keep doing, keep doing. All the religions in the world, in one way or another, teach this. Good advice, which is bad advice, because it's not good news. Right? Isn't this great? This is great stuff. This is amazing, relevant stuff. Because it's all about Christ and His sufficiency and His exaltation and His splendor and His glory and His honor. But it has implications. Well, this same Jesus Christ, to those of us who have, by His grace, trusted in Him and Him alone, told His original disciples, and then He told His original disciples to tell the next set of disciples, who would then tell the next set of disciples that we would keep this at the forefront of our thinking, the finished work of Christ. In fact, he even said that, that believers would gather together with frequency and together we would proclaim His death, that is to proclaim His finished work, to proclaim His substitutionary atonement that frees us from all other isms. And then we're to do this until He comes again. We're to be atonement-centered, Christ-centered, gospel-centered until He comes back because it is everything to us. We call it communion. We proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Well, I've been proclaiming the Lord's death and his perfect atonement now for who knows how long this morning. Perspiringly so. And now we have an opportunity as a church to proclaim his death until he comes in a way that he told us to through simple bread and simple wine. And we're going to do that now. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for the great, great privilege we have of opening up your book, your word. And Father, I have to acknowledge before you that it creates havoc. The truth about your son is so amazing and so freeing, but on the way to getting there, it necessarily assaults everything that gets in the way of his glory. But we are not ashamed of that because we're not ashamed of the gospel. We're not ashamed of the implications. We are thrilled about them, having experienced them ourselves, many of us. Lord, now thank you for this opportunity we have to celebrate your death and your resurrection on our behalf in a way that you even told us to, in a tangible way, using bread and using wine. Lord, help us to be grateful, to be thankful, to be praising you and honoring you for your great work of redemption in your Son. In his name we pray, amen.